All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars. My name is Ryan Goke, and we have Joshua Hendricks. Hello, hello. Austin Ivey. Hey, everybody. And Marcelo Gonzalez. Hey, everyone. And today we're going to cover a political adjacent topic, and that is going to be online versus face-to-face learning. I say political adjacent because it's not necessarily directly involved in politics, but since we are all either current or former, very recent former graduate students uh, that did a significant amount of schooling through the pandemic, and also a lot of the legislators are talking about what should our procedure be going back face-to-face, and a lot of the companies and schools that we work for are also talking about how should we allocate funding for upcoming travel when we have hybrid options now. So we're just going to kind of take some time to unpack this. So uh, this past year, the majority of schools wound up doing some form of uh, high flex learning, which is some combination of online and face-to-face. And at portions, we were completely online. And obviously at the start of the pandemic, people were completely face-to-face until we started leaving. So we're going to give you a little bit of an overview for uh, just kind of our personal experiences and then what we think are some of the pros and cons of both and how we can see this playing out. Maybe do a bit of prediction and then also talk about you know what we would like to see play out so i'll kick it over to the other three to see uh where we'd like to start everyone knows what we're talking about when we say online versus face-to-face learning if you're face-to-face you go to a classroom you go to a physical place to see other people and when you are doing online learning you log into zoom and uh, you turn off your camera i'll say that uh personally my experience with it has has been like I would say as good as it could be because I, I think as we'll see there's a lot of drawbacks to not being able to talk with people in person especially I would say like internet connection problems uh, equipment in general like access I think uh, calling online learning accessible has been very terrible to it because there's a lot of things that can go wrong with it uh, in many ways. Also, sometimes you turn on your camera. I know uh, most students in the classes I had online a lot of uh, blank screens. And that's just the worst as someone who taught some of those classes too. You know, you're just sitting there. Uh, you have to almost teach for yourself at that point. My ridiculous puns and jokes go completely unappreciated, or at least I can't see the eye rolls and the groans. So, but now you have the soundboard, so you can you can add your own your own laugh track. <laughs> Actually, it's probably more. Like- <laughs> Like he's got think, too much power. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do think coming out of the pandemic and going through it, though, that we, especially in, you know, in the academic institutions and, you know, the K through 12 system, like we hadn't been utilizing, you know, Zoom, you know, or synchronous online classes, as we came to call come to call them um, before. And before the pandemic, when someone said an online class, they meant your professor posted something in the learning management system, either desire to learn, e-learn or Canvas, something like that, um, and then emailed you once a week. And that was your holistic interaction with the class. Maybe you had like, some discussion board posts that everyone totally enjoyed doing. (laughs) Um, So I do think through this process, we found a better online format than asynchronous. Something else to add to a repertoire that allows us to meet more unique needs, distance needs, um, and even time needs. Because if you think about for professional degrees um, or people who are retraining and taking night classes like adult learners, not having to commute to go to class for people who don't have a lot of time anyways can be a significant advantage. You know, if you're trying to go get your kid from school, get off work, you know, take care of, feed your family at night, and then you have a 6 p.m. class that you got to drive 30 minutes to well having that extra you know 30 minutes not having to you know commute can be a you know great option for people and so you know even as much as we might want to talk 
down, you know, on, you know, Zoom University, we still did learn a lot of how to better, you know, increase classes because, you know, when I, you know, started getting my master's degree and thinking about different programs, the idea of an online master's degree was so unappealing because you'd never get to talk to a professor at all. And you'd just be so completely disengaged from the networking and community building you're typically doing in grad school. But that's even still somewhat possible or more possible in a Zoom environment. You can still get to know people in your class. Um, I do think this is dramatically different for our undergraduate students because they did not want to be there. And so you had black screens and low engagement. Um, but for all of my classes um, that I was in, we were graduate students. Half of us or more were employees of the school. And we worked with the professors who were teaching our classes. And not only was there you know higher expectations of us as graduate students, but you know we were also wanted to be there. We weren't you know undergraduates there getting our check boxes. So I, I think synchronous classes talks about how we can better utilize the internet as a teaching tool and as, you know, a digital room to do more stuff with than we ever could before. Yeah, Josh, that's I think, very fair. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, particularly since Zoom allows professors to record their lectures with no extra work. So if I'm teaching from my laptop, there's a camera right there. And if, you know, if, if a class was required to teach in the classroom and have that high flex option, more often than not, they also had cameras in there that the students um, could watch recorded lectures from later. I think that was um, a huge benefit that I'm hoping will be carried over, um, not because I plan on missing classes or I support missing classes, but because when I'm in a stats class as a grad student, I want to go back and I want to watch exactly what he said word for word and watch him share his screen and, you know, have the instructor walk me through the problem when I get stuck. To me, that was a huge benefit, even though I was engaged in the class. So I think that um, I had quite a bit of positive feedback from undergraduate students as well, where either they had some stuff tossed up in the air um, with COVID and everything else going on to where they couldn't make my class time, but they were diligent to watch it, or they just wanted to go back and watch it. I think that's a second benefit to this that is probably um, overlooked a lot of times when we talk about uh, Zoom University. <laughs> yeah, I think that flexibility, like sharpening those tools to bring courses into the 21st century, so to speak, that's definitely some one good thing that's come out of the pandemic. I know for my previous coursework, my last degree, I spent quite a bit of time using resources like YouTube, Khan Academy, especially for more basic maths and science classes. Um, a lot of it because you could just, you know, click repeat and you could get some good old fashioned repetition for the sake of memorization. Now that professors are recording their courses themselves, you have that built into the class. So definitely some utility there. I think that's a really good point, Ryan. Can I ask a question? Who here took an online class before we were all forced to take an online class? Because I know I took one in all of undergrad. I took, I took one. one. Yeah, same here. It was it was uh, a communication online course. And so the purpose of it was there is no lectures. It was learning to communicate with everyone asynchronously. So things like professional email, uh, discussion boards and things like that. So like that was probably the only class that I took online that I thought was set up well because it was designed by, I, I think most of you know, I'm Scott Christian, uh, to be let's learn how to communicate online. And I took one other course that was more of a science -y course and that was a disaster. <laughs> so I kind of had two different fields experiences with that. Might I ask which science course it was? I think it was just a, a biology course. Nice. I had a calculus two course. Um, with it being a basic maths course, you know, you're going to be grinding away at a lot of that stuff on your own anyways. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but it felt with most online courses pre-pandemic, it was very much, I'm checking this box. I'm you know, dotting my I's, crossing my T's, and then I'm going to move on with this kind of thing. It wasn't so much, um, I don't know, less engaging. That'd be the word I'd use with, you know, older online courses. 
I mean, I mentioned it because when when Josh said uh, that we basically made the jump, that we we needed to catch up to modern standards of how this all works. It's like before, not only like in classes, but like if I needed to set up meetings, even if there were there were like a city apart, we would be like, okay, yeah, we can call on the phone, but we should probably meet in person. And it was like this huge thing was like, okay, let's. When can you do it? Or I can do it, you know, Friday at 5 p.m. Oh, no, but I can't because, okay, then let's push it another week. And now it's just like, yeah, I'll send you the link. Okay, sure. And then it it, it made meeting up with people. It's made meeting up with people so, which, so much easier and like, you know, in a way that I, now we take it for granted, but it, it didn't used to be the case. Taking online classes that I've taken, well, the only one that I took before this was a thing, um, not my experience. And it, it's gotten a lot better. So I guess I should be grateful. I think when we transitioned online, it highlighted the importance of instilling intrinsic motivation in students. So either making your material something that they understand that there's a purpose so that they can apply it themselves, or highlighting the importance of getting them to take initiative because they think that school in general is something that's important to them. If they were not those students, typically there was, you know, pretty significant correlation with the students who were the black screens, who were there just for the the checkbox. They were there because participation was required required and then you know the showing up even though their screen is blacked out for some would count and i think that it really highlighted the importance of instructors taking initiative with their students uh, especially those who might not be coming to class connecting with those students because if a student thinks a class is not important or they think education in general is not something they're terribly interested in it's just a box to check they were usually the first to go missing and so for instructors i think that it really highlighted the importance of connecting with your students and not just saying okay i'm teaching this class because we all need to do it, but rather what are the skills you'll take away from this because typically there's an increase in your participation and your attendance when the students see that there's something of value that can be gained from it. I think it also highlighted the important role of developing the class and room environment the professor has with um, through the relationship with the students. So like with our debate team, the two other coaches wanted to do normal practices. And that was funny because they didn't show up. Um, so I did it. And after a couple months, I was like, okay, this is dumb because, you know, one, there's a, there's a minor critique I have about practice rounds for debate and their teaching purposes anyways, um, especially when you had a team as small as I did, which was like four students. So what was I going to get running them against each other every week? Like, okay. And so after a while, I said, you know what? It is now officially clubhouse hour show up and we'll just chill for a couple of hours and that will be our team weekly meetings. And that's what we'd do. And about every third week, I'd maybe do something traditionally educational, bring in some neat little example. Um, one of my favorite things, I'd have them watch ads and then be like, okay, now how can differently we read this ad? Because I was you know, also training them how to differently read someone's argument. Because an ad is an argument. How do we read an ad? How do we read an argument? And it gave us neat ways to go find weird ads. So that to me helped foster a lot more of the team in, in class environment. And also um, in thinking about it, you know, there's in Zoom often, not really a way to talk to the professor after class because there's no space. If three students want to talk to a professor at the end of the class, you can go right out in the hallway. You can stand in the back of the room, finish your notes, pack up, browse the internet, do whatever, wait for the professor to be free, walk back home with the office. You, there's not that time to develop a personal bond, even with the students who do seek that out. And I'm not sure I have a great answer off of the top of my head, other than if you have a three day a week class, maybe doing something silly one of those days or, you know, setting time apart in the class where it's not just lecture. Like we talk about the importance of classroom activities for like in-person classes. That's 
still true online and something that I, you know, wondered about how much was being carried through online. How many of these Zoom lectures are the professor talking for 90 minutes and everyone signing off? Because you're right, three times a week for 16 weeks of that, I'd go a little insane too. Like that's a lot. And so I think providing space for the relationship and context of what's going on to be different is super helpful in an online learning institution to make students feel that connection to the class, to you, to each other. Because even if you can't sync them on the topic or sync them on the education system, if you can sync them on you, on the class, on the university body and student population and student identity, those can be significant in improving student retention and their grades. That's why we push student organizations so hard on campuses, because students who are involved in those typically do better. I have always heard and I've always said as a student that online learning is inferior to in-person learning. And I think that COVID solidified that that is true if it is approached in the same way. But I think it's also shown that online learning has significant strengths that when we actually try to structure a class like Josh mentioned um, in a way that you get something out of it, either something different or we find a new way to do something so you still get that type of a meeting. As long as we don't approach it in the exact same way and instructors aren't, you know, just like lazy, just like copy paste original and then, oh, sorry, you just get recorded lecture. I think it can be a great experience for students. It's definitely not the time for hot takes, but my hot take is that in every single possible way, online learning is inferior to in-person learning. But I only say that because I'm privileged enough to have lived close enough to university for all of my learning experience. If I didn't live close and if I didn't have the resources to like, because in my brain, it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to go to like, why would I not go to class? I can get like, you know, food nearby. And that's expensive. You know, I can just take the metro. Why not? And, and that's, you know, more expensive than just logging in. And I have all of the equipment here and there. It's like, yeah, just take your laptop. Why not? And there's people who can who don't have that opportunity. So from my very privileged viewpoint, if you have all of these advantages, then making, I, I, w- I would say that it's probably a better use of your time to, to try to go there. But I'm not going to say I'm as a commuting. At least that's better. Yeah, at any given day, pretty much, there's going to be free pizza somewhere on campus as well. So that's a big draw. Yeah, I think distance is definitely one of the strengths of online learning. Um, We even saw this in, you know, the debate circuit where we had, you know, tournaments where people were competing from Florida and Alaska. Usually that would never happen. And even more intriguing in the International Public Debate Association, we have two kind of stronghold points of the country of schools who attend it, which is the Southeast and Gulf of Mexico area up into more of uh, even a bit more north in the the Southeast Um, and the Pacific Northwest. And um, driving to those uh, two destinations is rather difficult if you're either one of them. And so we usually only see schools, you know, sometimes at nationals. And this past year, we got to compete with them every tournament. We had much more diverse schools come from different areas, you know, made planning them kind of difficult because it's time hard to plan something fairly for someone in EST and someone in Alaska because it was a very significant, not even just out to the specific time, um, you can get some five hour differences out in Alaska. Um, And so it can make scheduling hard, but we were able to you know, include a lot, a lot of people. And even though the tournaments were smaller in general, because recruiting was hard and who wants to do online debate, what are you all? <laughs> um, um, salute to the students who stuck with it. They have my respect. I'm not sure I would have done it. Um, <laughs> but they did. And we, we were able, you know, just to enjoy the ability to have such a you know, diverse entry field, you know, in comparison for IDP, IPDA, when it's often kind of the same dozen schools uh, being involved. And the first time I did online debate when I was doing my undergrad, um, we did it through Skype because 
there wasn't as fancy modern teleconferencing software yet. And that tournament was hosted in Afghanistan, and we competed with people from China, Pakistan, India, a few other European countries, and we were the um, American team there. And that was, you know, one of my highlights of my debate experience, you know, was getting to interact and talk and even just, you know, people from all around the world, but even from all around our own country. It's a very big country with a lot of different people. And that does highlight part of where online debate misses out as you don't have kind of the big gathering room to go talk to everybody. But still the experience to share ideas and compete and see different tactics is something only online debate really offered us before. You wind up seeing a lot of things that were previously impossible become possible and a lot of things that you valued about whatever activity you were doing kind of lose it. So one example of that is the students hated not being able to travel because they didn't get to see their friends. Like Josh, you mentioned just a second ago, there's no place for them to go hang out between rounds. Like, yeah, I loved competing, but what I loved more was chilling with the people afterwards and just getting to know them. Like that's how Josh and I met um, and became friends and, you know, slash adversaries right? is you build that rivalry because you don't just see them behind the screen. You don't just see them in the round. You see them as people. You get lunch with them. Like you get to hang out with them. So a lot of the interpersonal relationships took a bit of a hit. Um, and then some opportunities uh, that we never would have had, we got. So for example, like if if your team had a smaller budget or a near non-existent budget, you were able to travel a lot more. Like my students had the opportunity since we were only paying a fraction of our normal fees with almost the same budget this year. I was like, you could have a tournament almost every week. Like someone is hosting. If you have the time and you want to go and, you know, some of my students saw some of Josh's students, which they would never see. Um, some of them saw students that I had coached down in the Murray, Kentucky area, something that never would have happened. Even just like uh, teleconferencing for like this podcast, like Zoom would not have been a thing and no other platform really was hosting uh, on par with Zoom and everybody was forced to improve their software to keep up. So, I mean, keeping long distance relationships um, and discussions alive is a huge benefit that's come out of that, I think. Imagine no Zoom. We'd have to post this correspondence on a blog or Reddit or something. Oh, cringy 12 year olds. <laughs> you're right. You're right. One of, one of the things I missed most, uh, and I, I, I feel sad to admit this, but like when I would get eliminated and then I would just get to like either chill in the break room or um, cheer on the people who got further than me. It was nice. It was a good time. Also waking up at 5 a.m. That was a great time too. Having uh, breakfast, it was like an apple and some like dry pancakes. It was a great time. Yeah, it's not a real tournament experience until you're asking yourself, do I really want to break or do I just want to be done? <laughs> I saw on a Twitter thread, um, it, it actually a very articulate, which is unusual for Twitter, but a very articulate reason that college is going through much turmoil. And to kind of summarize that thread, uh, the individual who wrote it, I don't remember who it was at this point, but they basically said that college has marketed themselves as an experience rather than something that will help teach a skill, which is why we have such a budget crisis, because where do schools get their revenue? The football or whatever their big sports is that draws in the crowds that people pay for. And that means that when you don't have that because of a pandemic, you no longer have the revenue. You also no longer have the experience. So like the Big Ten, uh, Penn State, the Ivy Leagues, they can't say we are an experience. We are an opportunity to meet people. We are the college experience. They now have to market themselves as, well, how is a Penn State person speaking online any better than YouTube or any better than a Tennessee Tech or a North Dakota State person speaking online? Yes, they're 
pedigree, yes, their past, yes, the school, but you've lost what was one of your competitive edges. And so you saw a very large spike in community colleges. You saw a very large spike in the smaller, cheaper, more affordable schools. Cause I'm like, okay, I can do $50,000 and go to a top 10 every semester, or I can do, you know, $9,000 for a four year school in somewhere else that's closer to me. So school was forced to justify their existence. As, as someone who didn't go to a big 10, but did pay $50,000, I feel you. <laughs> I think it's uh, the idea of like going to grad school in DC when you're in grad school, but you're not in DC hurts a little bit for sure, especially when they don't reduce the tuition. Yes. And I so, think that's, that's a big about gripe about a lot of the students is that they're still paying the same amount for less, right? Like usually I was like, okay, fine. Like that's an automatic fee for, uh, I don't know, such and such privilege on campus. And I was like, okay, I may or may not use that, but I could because I was allowed on campus and they're still charging that. And you see it itemized on your billing, but you're not allowed to use the student union or, you know, whatever the gathering places that they're charging you for. Yeah, well, I also think that's um, something to think about for like online students as a whole. Like if your university is offering an online program track, are you still charging them campus activity fees? I don't think you should. I'm less sympathetic to tuition changes because depending on what state you're in, the tuition is the only money that's allowed to be used to pay your professors. Like in Tennessee, you, professors can only be paid from tuition. That's why the campus activity fees are not just included in your tuition because if they were part of your tuition, they could not be used to pay for student organizations. So they have to make a special student organization fee to bypass the government's laws of tuition pays for um, professor's salary. And so, you know, tuition staying the same yeah, all of the extra on-campus stuff, though, there's a lot to be brought into it. There's also a big question. There's a lot of things about the college experience that Ryan brought up I think is important. So I remember when I was at um, community college, one of my friends said he wasn't going to transfer um, to a non-D1 Division One school. He didn't care about um, the programs or like what it was ranked for, what he wanted to study. He was only going to apply to Division One schools. Didn't look at like tuition price. Nah, anything else matching? No, only to D1 schools. And I was just flabbergasted. I'm like, what are you doing? And he was like, I want to be able to go and go to, you know, the sports games on the weekend. And I'm like, okay, also, that's a reason a, people go to college, I guess. Wait, sorry, not, not an athlete then? So just Nope, like nope this fan. was a debater. This was a debater who was majoring political science, choosing to go to a school for their football team more so than their actual political science department. Man's got to have a football team. That's it. And I, I understand that like the college experience is a very real selling point. And I think what this thread was talking about is when it becomes the only selling point and then you scramble to justify the education, which is supposed to be the main reason people are there, then we have a problem. And what I really liked about this thread was not just a really uh, <laughs> depressing diagnosis, but he actually went on to talk about, well, where do we go from here? And I think one of the things he mentioned is we need to start getting back on track. Obviously, the antithesis, right? Instead of focusing on sports, really justify your educational program. Start investing in, you know, we already invest in STEM, but start investing in the arts. Start investing more in areas where students can actually gain tangible skills instead of just or so much into your football team. Football team's great. Football team brings in the revenue. But I mean, I think Josh and Marcel and I are well aware that, you know, forensics has a far more, in the most instances, a far more applicable and tangible skill that's carried into the workforce. Learn 
learning to articulate thoughts, learning to view other people's opinions and respect them and, you know, articulate your own beliefs and being well-spoken in general. Like three of the top 10 skills employers want is some form of communication, written or verbal, and they struggle to exist. So diversify and don't put all your eggs in a pandemic uh, threatening basket. Hey, yeah, and besides, in, in debate, the only thing that's going to injure your brain is your opponent's bad arguments and not, you know, their helmet. Let us debate in the stadiums. I don't understand. Like, let us debate in the, in the big stadiums. Just put two tables there in the middle. You know, I want to see some debates like, uh, like, like, you know, they always show us how they, like, whenever there's, like, some, like, high school debate going on a tournament and there's some auditorium full and there's people on tables. I'm like, yeah, okay. I want to. I wanted to go back to one thing that that Josh said. Yeah, of of course, I, I complain about paying a lot of money, and I would obviously would want to pay less, or would have wanted to pay less. But also, I know that they're not using all of those fifty thousand to like keep keep campus. I don't know, like uh, up up to like to speed or something, whatever. Oh yeah, because mo- most of the money is used for t- tuition. Most and like they have built all of this infrastructure, not only like physical but also like people infrastructure like they have all of these professors and and, and all of this staff that um is getting paid to live in a very expensive city one of the most expensive cities in the in the country and like if your salary is whatever however much it is they can't just be like well sorry we had a pandemic so we're gonna have to cut your salary um which doesn't it really doesn't make any sense and i know that we also lost some very valuable staff members because we lost money so so I understand uh, to to a certain point, and 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 I and I know that it's not on them; it's on other people. Uh, the fact that again we're paying all of this money, yeah. and suddenly it didn't seem sustainable anymore. I would also say probably the breakdown of how tuition is spent is going to be dramatically different at a school charging six thousand, like USM attempts to charge me, and fifty thousand. And I also think it will be different from a um, private institution to a state institution. But yeah, I definitely think there has to be some, like, if we're going to invest in online programs and some, you know, schools offer online degrees, I would really, um, and I've, you know, never looked at it myself, but be interested to see of how many of those online students end up actually paying tuition and campus fees when they're completely remote students who don't have the access to those resources they might then be paying for and like student activity fees and such. I do think student organizations, though, probably represents one of the largest harms to the university experience that also has educational value. Because even for, you know, know, this is probably a statement true for all student organizations, like recruiting was really hard online. Student organization fairs online, no. There's a reason you get drugged to the organization fair after orientation. You're a captive audience and you can't run away. (laughs) Who's going to click on a Zoom link to come to a student org fair? Or again, there there were people out there, but uh, but I'm giving that real take because I, I probably wouldn't be one of them. Um, I, I joined debate because I needed something to do in the afternoon and I don't want to drive home. I think the impact on student organizations as a whole is definitely, there's going to be a lingering effect from the pandemic of what we see like those organizations struggle to get their numbers back. But I also think that the pandemic cast a lot of doubt on some of the student organizations and their sustainability and what the universities are willing to travel on them. And I think for a lot of universities coming up, even in this fall, there's still going to be a lot of questions about student traveling. The thing I tell my students is I have no doubt USM will let us travel. I doubt USM will let us bring people to campus. Because there's a difference between one of your competitive teams or student organizations getting sick, one or two of them getting sick um, out on a trip. You know, that's a simple mass email, if that. Hosting an event on campus that has a minor outbreak 
is a media story. And I think that's a, a real significant risk that universities are going to undertake. And even like for the base schedule, it's getting planned out and universities are indicating they're going to host. But I wonder um, if we see minor resurgences um, and on the you know, unvaccinated populations as the Delta variant spreads more and more. And we see like small outbreaks, how shaky the kind of faith of university administration will be in allowing students to travel and events like this to continue. But I will say, I don't think anything could imperilize the uh, university campus, though. I think campuses will remain open and class open, even if they're all small outbreaks, because, and this will obviously vary campus to campus, but my university had five vaccine appointments every 15 minutes from eight to eight for two months. And I imagine we'll be doing something similar again in the fall. And so when we're doing mass emails out, professors are emailing students, department chairs are emailing faculty. And so I imagine the significant vaccination rate on campuses will protect, you know, most of the university body, but I still am deeply concerned about travel and hosting events on campus. Uh, this past summer, uh, actually just a couple of weeks ago, I wound up having an opportunity to attend a seminar for uh, a data, data analyst, uh, basically three weeks to learn how to do a specific type of uh, data, data analyzing for, that I'll need for my dissertation. And that was hosted exclusively through the University of Kentucky, a lot closer to, well, at least Austin at this point, and where I used to be than where I am now. If I had tried to attend that in person, I would have to pay flight costs. I would have to take time away from either work or school or whatever else is going on in my life, and I would also have to pay uh, the more hefty attendance fee as well as lodging and food and everything else. Because they were the year post-COVID, they were still, they're like, this is, we're going to do this another year of hybrid. And so they had myself from NDSU and someone else from uh, a European country. I don't remember which one, but it was more accessible to both of us. And we were able to benefit from the scholars who are the expert in the field that we need to without costing our department or ourselves a bunch of money. However, when you attend a conference like this, while it's more accessible, I don't really get to network with these people. Like in a lot of conferences is the relationships after the presentations that are cultivated that kind of catapult you into future research with these people or more connections that you can benefit from, or even just enjoying something out of the research that you've been doing is those relationships. So you do still lose that. And while that benefited me this summer, like Josh and I both have the National Communication Conference coming up in November. And I do wonder as we go forward and some of the conferences still say, we'll do this partially virtually. I wonder how many universities will be like, well, you can do it virtually, therefore you should, and we won't fund you to go. So like, I do wonder what the impact might be going forward on academic connections and collaborations if the universities start thinking, hmm, we could save a lot of money by not funding people to travel, whether it be for like debate tournaments or NCAA tournaments, or even just faculty and students furthering their careers. Yeah. And I think what's also and I read this, an article about this a long time ago. It was about um, a scholar from South America talking about how a lot of major European countries and American countries don't realize this, but most other countries just blanketly accept our passports. When I wanted to go to Spain, I flown a plane to Madrid, landed, handed the guy my passport. He stamped it. I walked in. Visa? Nah. Explaining myself? Nah. I said I was just here to visit for three weeks. He's like, all right, stamp my American passport. Paperwork? Nope. And I could do that to pretty much any of the EU countries. Just land, stamp, nothing. No application, nada. Because the United States has travel agreements with the EU, so I don't have to do a visa to go to the EU. 
Not every country has that. Sometimes there are applications feel like when you go to China, there's for Americans, there's a little bit of money involved because you got to send in an application. Their government's got to approve it. And it's a very involved process. You can't just hop on a flight to Beijing and show up there and hand your passport and you stamp and walk in. And so I think, and, you know, we're liberal arts comp scholars, so we don't, you know, get the big fancy international conferences usually anyways. All there is, there is an international organization, but you really got to be big and fancy for your school to pay you to go to that. But other major science you know, academies and the hard sciences have, you know, significant international events that a lot of the, you know, even everyday scholars need to go to. And as much as like, you know, we talk about how our institutions, like global institutions will also realize like this pressure more. And in one way, it will be a little sad slash interesting, like that offering virtual conferences allows for better attendances. But in some sense, there's a real chance, as Ryan pointed out, that the universities will use our own kind of schemes against us um, and say, well, if it is, you know, partly virtual, then it ought to be, you know, save the money, save the trip, and the pandemic's still kind of going on. Don't go anywhere. But from what I understand, actually, Ryan, that NCA is currently not planning um, a virtual component. Correct. Um, I think ICA is. So next May, yeah. they're going to try to do that to get as many people as they can. But you're right on the NCA. Uh, Austin, tell me a little bit about your experience, because you had a student at Tennessee Tech experience the past year. What was that like for you? What did you like? What you dislike? Yeah. So um, spring 2020, obviously when COVID hit, kind of blindsided. Um, it started right at spring break. We got emails from the university saying, hey, take another week to spring break. Hey, don't come back to campus. So <laughs> that was kind of a trip. But the first semester was quite rough. Courses that weren't traditionally offered online had to adapt extremely quickly. Uh, but then they had the whole summer following that to kind of retool some things. And I think Busy Tech had a really good balance for the fall. And then this past spring semester, they offered some high flexibility classes. So, you know, obviously if you were sick, you're able to tune in online. Professors were recording their lectures. Professors who are at risk because they're older were able to stay home and lecture online. Uh, like we were able to sit in a large lecture hall. Professor would zoom in themselves and be facilitated by a TA. So we'd actually get a hybrid experience as far as the lecture goes. They had a good balance with that. But then some of the more important engineering classes, namely the two that come to mind are heat transfer and fluid mechanics, very core to engineering curriculum. Those would have been miserable experiences online. Yeah. Uh, material balance as well. Some of these really core classes require that you have have an experienced person there to help you kind of walk through some of the more complicated topics, or at least from my mind, the way it works, I needed that. Tech, I think, you know, to their credit, they did a good balance as far as the courses that needed to be in person. They did everything they could to facilitate that happening while encouraging social distancing. The courses that were kind of on the cusp that could be more online, they gave high flex options. So I think the plethora of options and then the advancements with online lecturing and stuff, it made for, I'm not going to say completely painless experience, but relatively painless compared to what it could have been with literally less than a summer to retool everything. Going back to one of our earlier comments about um, how you can have either a good or a bad experience depending on the instructor and how the course is set up, I actually had the opportunity to run a research study with uh, two of my grad school friends to see, well, what is most important to students in the classroom environment when they might not have a choice or they might have a choice on the type of platform. So for example, if I'm a student who prefers to learn in person and I had that option, what we found in this study was that there were specific things that were important to them, um, specifically like the 
relationship with the instructor. But when a student was like, I want to learn in person, but then the university didn't let them. And so they had to do an online option. Other things were important to them, including and specifically for some students, what was most important to them was the procedure of how the instructor graded. So it wasn't necessarily their interest in the course that was a big factor in uh, like their satisfaction and things with the course, but rather what is the procedure? Do, do I think that the instructor is treating me fairly compared to other students? And so in general, what this study found was that students like to have a say in the type of learning. And so when we offer multiple things, like you had online, you had face-to-face, -face, you had synchronous, which is where your instructor lectures live, and then you had asynchronous where the instructor just uploads stuff. You also had Zoom, where within a particular class, students could choose to either show up in person or Zoom in. Um, and so with all of these options, students had the potential in theory to get a lot more satisfaction out of a course because there was so much input they could have. Well, in practice, a lot of times that didn't work out because a lot of the students didn't get what they wanted or the university was like, hey, COVID is too much of a risk. We can't give them that. So I think one of the big takeaways that academia needs to think of is at least giving students the perception that they have some weighty input, not just the rubber stamp where the students feel like, okay, I've been surveyed, but they did what they wanted to anyway. But legitimately giving them some form of control over their learning has a huge impact on how students perform in the classroom. And I think that uh, COVID really highlights that in that when you strip instructors and students of any sense of like control over a situation that, you, I mean, you see the depression, you see the isolation, like all of that just spiraling them downwards if you're not careful. So Marcella touched on this a bit before, and it was how there are still concerns with accessibility and whether or not, you know, digital access can reach everyone its meaning to. Um, and I've talked about a lot, you know, how people commute can get in the way, uh, borders can get in the way. And so we can provide a lot more access. But I think, you know, and as Ryan talked about how it's good to give students a choice, one of the reasons for that is sometimes access, you know, access means different things to different people. Sometimes driving 30 minutes to the campus is going to have of much higher access for someone than online. It could be because their home is noisy and not, you know, a place that you can study and, you know, go to attend a Zoom class. And it could be because they don't want to be at home for whatever reason they may have to not want to be there. And they find they feel safer on campus and like being on campus. But there's also device and broadband accessibility. Like, a lot of Americans don't have high-speed broadband. That's Americans. And on top of that, there, there's, you know, device access. Because even doing like a certain number of things like in classes, you know, can be hard. You can take pen and paper notes, but depending on your device, it may be hard to run Zoom, run an internet browser to look at the things in Canvas and be running a word processor. That might be taxing on your, your system. Zoom alone could be taxing on your system. We had um, one student on my debate team and um, their laptop just couldn't run Yatly, which is the website that we conducted tournaments on. Just full stop, we were getting a slideshow and just not conductive you know, for audio. And so, you know, I had a spare tablet that could run a web app pretty easily. And that's what, you know, she competed on for, you know, the entire academic year. Accessibility isn't always accessibility. And I think, and as we've highlighted, you know, continuously throughout this episode, the different modes being offered and treated equally and being given enough thought and care from administrators and faculty, if that is done, then that empowers students more than even, you know, any particular one done to absolute perfection, but it's the only thing done, is to provide those different modes of access. It's interesting that the different conditions force us to realize different shortcomings, like going back in person, I'm sure will make us realize some shortcomings that, you know, we did not realize we were accounting for over Zoom that we're now forced to reaccount for. I, I really do think the perspective shift back in person um, will cause some shifts about how we do in person and what that means, you know, to be accessible. 
I always found it really interesting the more and more I heard about college professors that weren't getting on to people about having their cameras on. Um, this also can come down to a device access. Sometimes uploading and you know, downloading more video can be shredding on their broadband connection. And so in the frat made sense, but probably most of the people in the black box you know, classrooms were just turning it on, putting on headphones or doing something else, even if they were there. Maybe they were quietly listening along. You would think with how nitpicky a lot of professors are about attendance, you would not have an option. And I know for quite a few people, you know, there was not an option. The professors did require it. But I also think it showed how we can learn more about accessibility on campus and what it means to have access to our campuses. The example I always like to use and I always tell debate students or anyone who has to like be expected to show up a time with me, if like an academic thing, like you wouldn't go get a doctor's note for a panic attack or a depressive episode and you wake up and you're just not getting out of bed that day. You don't go get a doctor's note from that. But you would be expected to go get a doctor's note for a cold or the flu. Yet you're not going to go to a doctor's office and be like, yeah, student has depressive episode, isn't coming to class. The medical system doesn't work that way. And so I think with attendance and the way we meet students in our classrooms, because I think a lot of the acceptance of the black box was, okay, you're here. And that's a dramatic improvement. You know, we'll take what we can get. And I, and I somewhat think that mindset towards students can make them feel better about class. Because when you come to them and say, listen, you know, I'll take what I can get, it makes them feel really wanted. If you tell a student, listen, I don't care if you take appropriate class notes. If you want to sit in the back of the classroom, not bother your classmates and shop on Amazon, thank you for coming to class anyways. I think attitudes like that can really help build students' involvement. And, you know, that's why, as I talked about earlier, we did that with practice. Okay, we're not doing anything important practice. Just come. Be here. Hang out with me. Know you're appreciated and wanted here. And I think offering different modes and access to education, you know, in good faith really helps highlight that to students, that we're willing to work with them and meet them where they're at to provide them the experience, you know, they're looking for to build their lives so that we can work together and, you know, make the education system happen. Thank you for that. I feel like that's something that I don't think enough about. And again, uh, being from from a background that was has always been like, yeah, you know, going to class is so easy because I don't have any of those barriers and that those barriers never existed to me. I generally consider online the lesser option when in reality it can be an outlet that can help a lot of people cope with the reasons why they might not be able to experience it like the rest of us do. I think that's a really good point Josh brought up. And again, I just think that speaks to the utility of having these different options. And again, out of all the bad that came from the pandemic, it forced us to sharpen some tools that uh, were in desperate need of sharpening, particularly for a modern time. So I think there's a lot of good that could come out of it. We will be right back with our hot takes. All right, so I guess I'll kick us off with our hot takes. Um, the academic system was decrepit and in need of a little shakeup. So out of all the bad that happened, we had some of the shakeup that we needed. We'll have to see how this next year goes coming out of our first full year through the pandemic. But I think there's some good things on the horizon for education. I really, I'm pretty optimistic about the direction things are going with the different options we have available, some structural changes that need to be made to some of the academic systems. I think there's good things on the horizon. So the not so hot, hot take. On my end, I would like to make a prediction, but not uh, not just for education, but I think for living in general, having the ability to do all of this as close as we are going to get for a long time in, in terms of like talking with people and interacting with them, uh, not only school, but also work. A lot of colleagues that I have right now that used to live in the D.C. area or in the New York area where our offices are, are now anywhere else, in California, Oklahoma, Texas, whatever, like it really other countries too. It really doesn't matter where you are. You can still be a part of of something uh, so that costs down on costs of playing that cuts down on costs that cu cuts down on like a lot of things that before 
seem very inaccessible. My prediction is that we'll see, I hope that we see a lot of people like get out of that mentality of like moving to the city and make everything more expensive here and to maybe possibly uh, try to expand that and try to uh, work with people in, in, in different areas. Um, and in terms of school, then yes, if tuition couldn't be so, so expensive, I would really appreciate that. All right, I'll do a couple of hot takes and then some of my hopes for how we'll see good come out of this situation. I agree with Austin 100% that we were in need of a shakeup. Uh, not that I particularly enjoyed some of the isolation that came out of the pandemic, but I think that it is a good tool that can be used as long as we take advantage of it to pinpoint some of the weaknesses and then strengthen those so that future people coming into education have a better experience once they uh, are, they have a better experience than can be more equipped once they come out. So I think that this can be the case as long as we do these things. The first is online has to be treated for what it is. It is different. You cannot expect as an instructor to walk in with your plan for a face-to-face -face course and that it will go well or as well. It can function, sure, but you and your students will probably not reach the same level of satisfaction with what's being taught if you don't adapt. Students walking into the classroom need to understand that you're going to need to be a little bit more uh, taking the lead, take a little more initiative with reaching out to your instructor. When you need help, you've, you've got got to go through those channels. Instructors need to make themselves more accessible. There's a lot of hurdles that can be overcome. And I think that when classes are thought of as inferior, it's very often able to be traced back to the fact that those hurdles were not jumped. I think it's also important to remember that the strength of uh, the online course is determined by the individual students' needs and their preferences, kind of what Josh and Marcelo have talked about, as well as Austin and also that study I brought up. Students find it to be very valuable when they can have input and when they feel like they have some sense of control or understanding of what's going on. Online courses to be strong and also face-to-face, -face, but particularly online, you have to give them a clear sense of direction of what is going on, what is expected, and how do you take control of your learning. And my hopes going forward is that education is going to start focusing even more on the teachers and the students. Yes, sports are important. D1s are great to watch, but we need students to be walking out with tangible skills. Otherwise, you've paid a lot of money or the taxpayers have paid a lot of money or you're in a lot of debt. However, you've gotten through college at that point, it's gone towards an experience and the experience needs to have a tangible skill you can market at the end or quite frankly, you've wasted your time, not because nothing good came out of it, but because you have not improved yourself in a way that will give you the leg up that people are expecting when they leave. We need to diversify the golden eggs into the knowledge baskets. So like we need to not be putting so much into the single hope of our football programs generating revenue. We need to start marketing college for what it is. It is about education. And yes, uh, the experiences are good. They help students grow and become adults that will function in theory when they leave. And yes, it funds the experiences we need, but that can't be the emphasis. So that's kind of my hope is that we will de-emphasize the experience and focus more on how can we make college accessible to students and actually make the knowledge something that they can take away. I would say the most the thing I'm most excited for from and what we've learned from the pandemic and the terrible position it put us in is that our online degrees will become better and more serious. I, and I think this has implications for the university system and not only offering professional degrees. If I had, if I was ever in the position and I wanted to go get an MBA for some reason, would I rather attend a Zoom university MBA or an asynchronous email MBA? Well, the Zoom one's going to be objectively better. 
least from my opinion. Um, that's not going to be true for everyone, but that's still going to be out there for people who are seeking advanced degrees, re-education, wanting to advance their career with like an MBA or something, that there's going to be better programs because I do think Zoom is better than asynchronous unless you just really crunch for time and don't have time to sit down for a lecture. But I also think you get a better dialogue and I think it's easier to teach and to make sure your students are taking away something in a Zoom environment than it is so in asynchronous. Like in asynchronous, you're just hoping and praying their essays don't come in something wild. At least in the Zoom universe, you can you know talk them through them, workshop ideas in class and get a feel for what's going on in a way you can't, you know, unless you just heavily discussion board it, which again is possible, but hey. But I also think there's going to be a widespread adoption for like professional training and certification courses. When I have worked in industry, it's been in information technology, hardware support, and physical um, server support. And some of like the Microsoft training and certification programs will be like this week-long nine-to-five camp that's in Nashville or Chattanooga or somewhere away that you're going to need to go put yourself up in a hotel and attend. That can now be done in per, you know, online. Um, that can now be done through Zoom. And so certificates and other industry certification training programs um, that exist for a variety number of industry jobs, I think will get a lot more accessible and a lot cheaper too. And I think in terms of just, you know, those aren't a part of our formal education system, but these professional development certifications and industry standards are still, you know, you know, educational and, you know, pseudo degrees for an industry. So I do think those are better. And that's also a really exciting path is some of our more what you might even call trade-based things can be taught easier um, and learned through um, kind of this online digital environment, especially in terms of like information technology and software engineering. And so I, I think there are, yeah, certain industries are going to be like really well benefited by this and this new advancement. And um, I think as also Marcel said, it provides us, you know, this new opportunity to think about how we do work and how we do organizations and how we can better tap into a global supply of workers and a global community of information to, you know, better advance, you know, humanity as a whole. We're better when we work together and the ability to teleconference and work essentially from across the world, but in real time, face to face with each other is an incredible advancement almost to the degree as profound as like a radio, you know? This is a completely new medium of human communication that will enable our productivity in ways that we never, you know, had before and enable long distance communication to be more complete than they were before. Whether it was, you know, uh, email or a phone call, you were always operated in, operating in some channel limited format. And just, you know, from a odd communication science standpoint, Zoom's just explicitly better. Uh, more channels is better. Sorry, you can't change my mind. I don't like channel-limited communication. It's terrible. Um, that's my true hot take. Channel-limited communication, it's awful. Don't text me, don't call me, I don't exist. All right, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. We'll be back here with more next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs> We'll be right